While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Cities come and go, I guess. I'm from up north where there isn't much agriculture and every inch of land is either someone's home or someone's business, and has been since Washington slept here. In Georgia, where there are open spaces, fields, and forests, a town can form, grow, and disappear. Sometimes there's nothing left, just a set of stairs on a hill leading nowhere. Sometimes you can visit the remains of what was once a busy and prosperous town. You can still visit the schoolhouse and churches of Appalachie on the Appalachie River between Watkinsville and Madison. But that's all there is, just the remains of a town that was once there. Nearby is Skull Shoals, once the site of some thriving textile and paper mills that were overcome by flooding in the 1920s. Now, they're just a few brick shells in the Oconee National Forest. This is Moving Through Georgia, Episode 4. There used to be a town here. Most of what I know about Auraria comes from a book called Auraria, the story of the Georgia gold mining town, written in 1956 by a UGA professor named E. Merton Coulter. Actually, I read a 2009 printing in paperback. The book still sells and generates interest in the old town. I've had people tell me it's the most comprehensive look at Auraria, so at the risk of being accused of plagiarism, I'll remind you that this book was my main source for this podcast. We've discussed the different stories surrounding the discovery of gold in Georgia. E. Merton Coulter is a Benjamin Parks man, and his book begins with Parks kicking over a loose stone near Dahlonega and finding gold. In 1832, the land lottery began placing settlers and prospectors in the area, and the search for gold was on in earnest. People need communities, though, and there were certain facets of civilization that are sure to build a sense of community in even the wildest place. A prospector named William Dean built a cabin in 1832, and nearby a fellow named Nathaniel Knuckles built a small tavern. The town had kind of been founded. The area had first been called Dean's and later Knucklesville. A major John Powell, obviously an educated man, is credited for devising the name Auraria after several variations on the Latin word aurum or gold had been tossed around. Apparently, the Roman historian Tacitus had used the word Auraria to designate a gold mine. At first, gold hunters panned the river and dug shallow holes in lowlands to find gold. We've previously discussed Philologus Loud's attempt to use a diving bell to search a riverbed for gold in the 1870s, and I had casually mentioned that such an attempt had been made previously. Professor Coulter mentions the use of the diving bell in this area in 1833, and even cites a newspaper poem exhorting the gold-hungry newcomer to... Wend you to the mines and see the various things for your temptation. 
stand on the banks of the Chestati where the diving bell's in operation. But towns are not formed by those who mine for gold. Towns are created by those who sell the shovels. Within a year, the Western Herald newspaper estimates a population for Araria of 1,000, including stores, law offices, and taverns. Just about anything could be bought for cash or gold, including cigars, champagne, herring, window glass, shotguns, and fur hats. Scarcity and isolation allowed the shop owners to set any prices they wanted, and one could expect to pay more for a genuine Philadelphia-made waffle iron in Aurora than in, say, Macon. John Powell, our Latin scholar, set up a laboratory to assay and stamp gold bars to facilitate their use as money. And local entrepreneurs even minted their own gold coins, a right that the Constitution denied the individual states, but apparently not the private individual. Banks that had established themselves in Aurora could also issue notes, and some could back them with actual gold assets. Aurora at that time was considered the county seat of Lumpkin County. But a dispute over the ownership of the original 40-acre lot the town had been founded on drove the courthouse and some other businesses north, where another site for the seat of justice was being considered. Aurorians complained bitterly about the county seat being established permanently five miles to the northeast on what was then called Lot 950. It was later named Lumpkin Courthouse, a name Aurora had boasted early in its history, and a name that's a lot easier to pronounce than Aurora. Eventually, Lot 950, or Lumpkin Courthouse, was also named after gold, only this time in Cherokee instead of Latin. Banks and government agencies left Aurora and moved to the new town of Dahlonega along with the new United States Mint. Professor Coulter, an obvious lover of the printed word, sets the beginning of the end for Aurora when the Western Herald newspaper moved offices and left town. In 1848, gold was discovered in California, which drew away more of the population. Aurorians traveled far and wide. Professor Coulter tells of men leaving the town to travel to Texas to help secure its independence from Mexico. And a group of townsfolk that went west founded a small burg on a riverbank in Colorado, naming it Aurora. Eventually, it would merge with some other small towns and become known as Denver. By 1860, Aurora was listed in a list of federal post offices, but had fallen off most major maps. In 1896, the state geologist passed through the area and noted, Now the place is barely a shadow of its former self. Decay has settled like a pall on the few houses left to tell the tale of its bygone activity. That was in 1896. All you will find in Aurora now is a red building that was once a bank, the ruins of the Graham Hotel, and Woody's General Store. But if you go to Dahlonega, people will give you directions on how to find it. 
Wikipedia lists White Sulphur Springs as an unincorporated community within Hall County named for a mineral spa whose municipal charter was revoked in 1995. Yes, I usually start with Wikipedia when I'm roughing out some new research. It gives me the broad strokes and usually a map, and sometimes gives me a starting point to find some primary or at least more scholarly sources. All that's left of White Sulphur Springs is a set of stairs and parts of a sidewalk that used to lead to the main hotel for the area. I've seen pictures, but everything is located on private property, so I haven't gone to snoop around yet. White Sulphur Springs was a resort with a hotel and cottages, and according to a story in the Gainesville Times, people from further south would travel there for relief from mosquitoes and the apparent health benefits of the mineral springs. The water had plenty of minerals in it, but it also had peace and quiet when you wanted it, dancing, room for the kids to run, and the most important part of any vacation, food that is prepared, dishes that are washed, and rooms that are cleaned by somebody besides you. The depression in the automobile caused the appeal of the area to dissipate in the 1930s, and a fire destroyed the hotel in 1933. It was on what is now called Old Cornelia Highway, north of the Giant Rabbit, and we'll get to that in another podcast, near White Sulphur Elementary School. Cassville and Bartow County are a little further than most things we explore in this podcast, but it's too good a story to pass up. The town was the largest town in Cass County, now Bartow County. Names are important here. The Cassville Historical Society states that the Georgia Supreme Court first met in Cassville and handed down their first ruling there. The Georgia Supreme Court, however, lists Talbotton in Talbot County for that honor, and both Bartow and Talbot County have markers for the first session of the Supreme Court. In May of 1864, Sherman's army came into Cassville. The Confederate army in the area prepared to fight and repel the invading army. The stand didn't last for long, and soon the Confederates were in retreat. There were some scattered skirmishes in the area, but generally the large masses of soldiers moved south toward Atlanta. In November of 1964, the town was put to the torch. Some say that Sherman ordered the town burned, possibly exempting the churches. Some say that raiders or Union stragglers were to blame. The destruction of Cassville is a fascinating historical mystery. Sherman left Atlanta for Savannah on November 14th or so. Why would he order men to retrace their steps back to Cassville and burn the town? The large stone historical marker in town contains a clue. The town had changed its name to Manassas in 1861. Was Sherman looking for some measure of revenge, or was he trying to demoralize the local Confederate supporters? Either way, the marker concludes, Town burned by Sherman, 1864, and never rebuilt. The nearby town of Cartersville had better access to the railroads and became the new center of commerce and government for the county. Some of the original Cassville churches are still standing. 
I do have one more thing to say about Cassville, but before I do, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a podcast about history, mostly in Northeast Georgia. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a positive review or tell a friend. There is no money being made by this podcast, so the only way other people will hear about it is through word of mouth. Also, If you have a story, if you have a UFO sighting, or a ghost story, or a Bigfoot sighting, or an interesting relative in your past, I would love to hear it. Email me at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com, movingthroughgeorgia is one word, and let me know if it's something that you would feel comfortable with me sharing with our listeners. All right, one more thing. Cassville and Cass County were named after Lewis Cass, who fought in the War of 1812. He also served Michigan in the U.S. Senate and worked in the cabinets of Andrew Jackson and James Buchanan. Buchanan was the president just before Lincoln. In 1860, however, the stage for the Civil War was set, Lincoln was waiting in the wings, and Buchanan was about to exit. As Secretary of State, Cass felt that Buchanan wasn't acting quickly or decisively enough to prevent hostilities. He resigned, and the country lost the voice of a man who believed that war could be averted through discussion and compromise. He was not overwhelmingly popular in Georgia. In 1861, the county was renamed Bartow County. Francis Bartow was a delegate to the Confederate Provisional Congress and a strong proponent of secession. He died at the First Battle of Bull Run, known in the South as Manassas, in 1861. Names are important. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe From an adept pretty gal to Georgia That's all